Hello and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. These guys are always fighting tooth and nail about the Mount Rushmore of any given topic, the four things that best embody a certain topic, and this week is no different, but this week is about differences and about identity and about phases and ch-ch-ch-ch-changes in the life of a performer, David Bowie, particularly his performance identities. And so that's the topic, David Bowie, identities and phases. You know, I want to say something. You know, we're recording this in February 2017. Yeah. And I want to be the first person in the world to ever say this about David Bowie. I think he's a chameleon, you guys. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. No. So mark that's it down on the calendar. <laughs> David Bowie being chameleon. Not a karma chameleon, though, right? No, that's no, no, no. Boy George. I'm thinking of the wrong guy. Okay, yeah, so we are we talking about Boy George now? Or which one is this? I found a... I've been reading this Bowie biography, and it's been... Is it called Boyography? <laughs> the Boyography. Um, it was not a David Bowie, it's Jim Bowie. And it's been not at all helpful for this podcast. Yeah. I did made I, that joke earlier. Did it preemptive? <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 no, no, no. I made that joke earlier before off air. So uh, one thing I find is interesting is like, you know, Bowie changes, changed his identity his, as a performer and in life a lot. There was the onstage Bowie and the offstage Bowie. And you seem like a, a seeker, a um, person who was fascinated with what identity was both as an individual whose offstage identity was very much about performance and fascinated also with um there was one list of bowie phases that described him as having a vampire phase due to the film the hunger and i feel like bowie spent a lot of his life as kind of a vampire copying different performers and subsuming their identity in order to have something new and relevant and interesting to to present out to the world. So it seems like he was somebody who was addicted to a lot of substances, but he was also addicted to being artistic and relevant and a piece of art in which the canvas never dried and was always evolving. But this biography basically said Bowie's life was art and Bowie's music was this secondary thing. Like he, he made music basically to accomplish what he wanted to as a performer. Uh, whereas some, somebody else you can't, can't imagine somebody like maybe John Lennon, being separate from the music, but for Bowie, pop was a means to the end of being this public persona. Well, pop was pop in the sense of Andy Warhol, almost this yeah. sort of disposable plastic sort of mm-hmm. thing that you can sort of transmute and just sort of a shell you can yeah. take off and on. Yeah, I, I, I had kind of written Bowie off in terms of obviously he's a true artist, but You've met those people, like you think of like a Madonna, where her... Never met her. Never met her. Okay. Well, when Madge and I are hanging out. Okay. Uh, who use, who are continually observing uh, youth culture, who are continually observing global culture to try to find their next new thing, to try to extend their shelf life beyond that of a traditional pop star. Right. Um, yeah, well, Madonna is a great appropriator, is what she yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... You have to, like somebody like a Lady Gaga seems like she has her identity is really ripped off of what Bowie's was. Because Bowie's first identity was essentially a a way to cover up the fact that he was, um, he looked weird. 
He right. was a, a person with an alternative sexuality at a time when that wasn't allowable or even speakable. Right. So he started crafting this. I imagine he was somebody whose who's day-to-day uh, job was to put on a role that allowed him to uh, inter, intermingle with all the kids at school and all these other people. But And his first few albums kind of released just as... Davy Jones, yeah. Dave, yeah, David Bowie sort of mop top looking, you know, folk rock singer. Yeah. Bombed. Yeah. So it kind of becomes, okay, they don't like me. What can I do to make myself successful? What can I do? Yeah. So that's, you know, the usually, usually at the beginning of this podcast, we, we say who chose the topic and why they think it's fascinating. And that that's, I chose it. And that's why I think it's fascinating um, that somebody took the opportunity to use the platform of musician and popular music to create not just one artistic statement, uh, but to create many and to abandon them at the peak of their interest level among audiences. So Michael Jackson kind of did the same thing with variations throughout his career. And Prince, incredible genius, he changed his name into a symbol at some point, but for the most part, he did the same thing. Uh, Bowie said a lot of it is about realization that you can be anybody you want to be. We put people in boxes. You don't have to be in a box. You can reinvent yourself. That's very liberating. You don't have to be one thing or one persona or one character your entire life. You can do whatever you want. So I, I, I find that compelling about Bowie as an artist. And one reason why his death was uh, a big had a big impact on a lot of people who felt themselves to be standing outside of the mainstream. He was the patron saint of weird for a lot of uh, people who oh, absolutely. felt like they they uh, they weren't. Uh, born in the mainstream and couldn't even get there if they tried. So, hey, Richard, did, was this like all a preamble of a humble brag by uh, Jeff that basically, uh, you know, revealed that he read a book about Bowie? You son of a bitch! He does read a lot of books. I haven't we finished. Get, we it's get suspicious. it. You can read. That's all I'm going to say. It's harder suspicious. for us. I haven't finished the book. You know the book also. <laughs> that's, okay, that's my favorite. <laughs> Never mind. I haven't finished the book. No. The, the book also read the jacket cover. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Such a cool jacket. It was a white jacket, and then it was the uni jacket yeah, that he had from like yeah. outside. <laughs> the book does posit how much of an asshole Bowie was too. So oh, does it? Bowie does it? used so many people. Bowie, you know, this guy like Iggy Pop who develops this um, uh, identity, and Bowie comes out and says, "I'm going to be Ziggy Stardust," and rips right. off his identity. So, but a lot of Bowie's um, outward message to to people was this liberating, artistic, uh, exotic, androgynous, um, otherworldly identity that in- encouraged other people to do a little bit of the same thing. But at the, at the same time, uh, this isn't about really him as an individual, but uh, a lot of artists have to kind of abandon their um, regular duties as a father, as a husband, <laughs> as, a, as an artistic collaborator. As a human being. As a human being. <laughs> this book says you know like other people like say picasso or or you know they that he 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 let people by the wayside P- pablo picasso was never called an asshole he was never not in new york so uh all right so um raise your hand who wants to start i'll start they li- sure. living for the record nobody raised their hand <laughs> michael michael's gonna go for it well i think the first one and the most obvious is probably Ziggy aladdin Stark. same yeah what no just um you touched on it earlier and i think it's you a, saw that a theme <laughs> i think it's a theme <laughs> that's so stupid <laughs> i think that's a theme that runs through all of my picks and just in general is the otherworldliness yeah of you mentioned him uh with a 
different sexuality at the time. Mm-hmm. And everything about his characters tend to be this alien persona, something that comes from another world or something that not every persona, but sure. they, they all kind of are started with like an outsider point of view. And I think that, you know, the story behind Ziggy Stardust and the spider from Mars and the whole fake band that came out of that, the band right. within a band thing, I think is pretty interesting. And he's, I think that's the most visually iconic look, the most, the thing that people can look back to initially and be like, okay, that is 100% David Bowie and that is 100% him adopting a new character. And it's not even just, it wasn't just David Bowie. He took on a whole new name and played yeah. you know under a, the guise of a different mm-hmm. band while on stage while he, while you went to go see David Bowie you also went to go see Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. and I, I was doing some research I didn't know actually it's something I did not know that I Z- read a freaking book <laughs> I read a Wikipedia page Buster okay. all right maybe even two of them <laughs> not one thing I didn't know I saw I read a Rolling Stone article um, that apparently part of the at least part of the Ziggy Stardust persona came from this 50s singer who originally wrote a brand new Cadillac, later got covered by The Clash, Mm -hmm. who eventually, because of drugs and other things, dropped out of the music scene and believed that he was an alien god sent down to Earth and started a cult based on that. Hmm. And that was part of the development of the Ziggy Stardust uh, persona. Oh, cool. That whole idea of him being this alien who was sent down to Earth to tell this story that humans had five years left to live, but he was going to be the person who kind of delivered this sort of like Christ-like salvation. So it was kind of, that was at least part of the development. I know you mentioned sort of the Iggy Pop sort of. Yeah. Pirating the glam rock androgyny rock thing. Yeah. So I think that's where, that's maybe where the look came from. Certainly the backstory came from these other places and Bowie's always had a, always had a fascination with, space and aliens and things like that yeah so it's kind of this amalgam of again it's kind of that idea of not necessarily creating something new but it's looking back on whether it's pop rock history or you know earlier ideas of space exploration mm-hmm. um and kind of taking that and then taking something that's slightly personal about himself mm-hmm. and putting that into the rest of it. And I think one of the themes I have a lot of mine is this kind of idea of his persona, as I mentioned this earlier, being plastic, being things that are just very disposable, that he's, in a lot of ways, a lot of these, he's doing a almost an impression of a rock star doing a persona. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he's trying to create what's the perfect example of this cliche of a certain type of rock star. Yeah. And, you know, Ziggy Stardust is the perfect cliche of the hedonistic, Mm -hmm. you know, pansexual glam rock, glam rock, which he, which certainly he was all those things, Mm -hmm. but it's also kind of a way to, it's almost trying to have it both ways. It's almost cheating that it's like he, he can be that person. But he can also say, well, it's just sort of part of a, it's trolling is what I'm trying to say. It really is like in a, almost that line of like, well, it's just a part I'm playing, but it's also him playing it. And it's also based on things that are really sure. happening in his life. I thought there, I thought it was interesting. Two things. One with the man who fell to earth that basically he basically took on this role in a visual, in a movie. Right. Of almost the exact 
I mean, he didn't, he wasn't a rock and roll star, but he was a creature from outer space that came to earth and was isolated and, you know, taken from his family and, sure. you know, uh, taken apart by the government basically and addicted. Right. And then that he just took another, uh, medium to tell a very similar story as along with that, uh, Marilyn Manson did a very similar thing with an album called mechanical animals, right? Where he basically had the same thing. It was about like this alien that came down to earth, but then gets abducted by the government, gets him addicted to drugs and puts him in a rock and roll mm-hmm. band called the mechanical animals. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, a lot of his albums are like concept albums, but you can definitely tell that they're, I wouldn't say ripped off. I'm sure that there's a great affection and a I'd great, say ripped off. Well, but well, you don't have to, I'll say it. <laughs> I would say that there is a affinity there towards a, another musician that he respected and, took that idea and made it maybe, you know, a hundred times more cynical and darker. And sure. I think what you said, like, or maybe it's Jeff is like, it's interesting to see him just kill it to kill, yeah. to kill a character yeah. when he's like done with it and been like, I don't think that's what people would generally do now. Or at least I don't think the record labels would want you to do that. I think well, they'd want you to continue like, okay, that was a hit. Let's keep going with that thing. As a joke, I mentioned Aladdin saying, you know, when we did our, our first intro here and that's fat that, that's fascinating to me because you mentioned Ziggy Stardust being the classic look, right? Mm-hmm. But I think if you were asked somebody to have one t-shirt, image, the of t-shirt, the t-shirt, the thing that everyone was wearing, you know, weeks, months after David Bowie died, it was the Aladdin Sane cover. Sure, but I mean that was that was part of his Ziggy Stardust persona. I mean, it was like an it was an album that came out after. Well, it was an extension of it. I, I think he said that it was like Ziggy Stardust goes to the U.S. It goes to America, basically. Sure, but it's all. I mean, it's not. We're not necessarily talking about individual albums. We're well, talking we're, about. Well, we're not. But that it was uh, at, it a was, look or an era. Of well, but it was the after the Ziggy Stardust persona had been killed off. Timeline wise, I think we can both so agree. I, I guess which I guess we're, my I, which, I think I guess we're splitting my, hairs. Well, here I guess my point with that one is. Yeah, I think he did have a, a finite shelf life to it. That actual album, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, is basically a self-contained story. Right, it's the rise and the fall. I mean, he, he's mm-hmm. the fall happens at the end, and it's a hell of a lot better plotted out kind of concept album than the Who's Tommy. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense, kind of, kind of just as its own thing. Yeah, but I think that was one. I think that was one persona he had a hard time getting away from. Sure, okay. Harder than most. I mean, then you had the Aladdin Sane. Um, after that, you had the, and I don't know if, if, this is, if I'm stepping on your list, let me know. But it was the Halloween Jack. No, he's not on my list, mostly because I, that's ridiculous. Because it's basically Ziggy Stardust with an eye patch. <laughs> yeah. so, but but it, it was this long stretch of just like kind of, even though he killed off Ziggy. Variants of a theme. It was still, I think, pretty Zig, Ziggy yeah. related. And thank God we're not talking about Ziggy, the cartoon Pretty character. Good. Can't catch a break. Doesn't wear pants. (laughs) One thing I think we can agree on is Bowie rocked a mullet better than a lot of entertainers we've ever seen. Oh, sure. Made it amazing in those first three identities. Okay, Michael and Richard both chose Ziggy Stardust. So, Richard, it's now your second choice. And my second choice is the Thin White Duke. Mm. Oh, The uh, character loosely, or I think maybe not even that loosely, based on the previously mentioned Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, when you mentioned that, I sort of thought, yeah, there is some Ziggy there, but it really is certainly visually. Oh, sure. The, sure. Proto, yeah, the proto look to the thin white Duke. He was thin. He, he was, was white. white. I don't know if he was a Duke. 
Might have been, been an earl. Archduke <laughs> or Viscount. something. Did he have a duchy? Did he pass uh, yeah. it? He had more than a duchy, I think, in this period. Because <laughs> this was square in the middle of, to quote him, his astronomical uh, cocaine use. So and that certainly played a role in, I think, what the character became. Because he sort of became manifestation of cocaine use. Yeah. Very kind of distant and cold and he looked, sort of a million miles away and sort of just not seemingly not moored to this yeah any human interaction whatsoever but at the same time also very much certainly when compared to Ziggy Stardust looking more like a classic entertainer mm-hmm. what what was the um what albums did you record under that um kind well of identity a little bit uh young americans but okay. primarily station to station mm. um certainly the young americans tour he was um performing with the uh, Thin White Duke persona, mm-hmm. which I think was sort of a reflection of that album being kind of his, as he said, plastic soul album. And so what do you do if you're kind of a white British glam rocker suddenly having to go out on tour and sing these soul so- Philly soul songs with like Luther, Luther Vandross yeah. as your you know backup singer and all this stuff? Well, you just sort of create this persona that is you know, incredibly on one hand conventionally entertaining you know it's he's dressed up nice he's got like a a nice shirt and vest and very polished as a performer but at the same time this persona that is so kind of fake and just artifice that you don't actually have to deal with any of the realities that are happening around you do you think do you think in a situation like this the music came first and then the identity was built to protect himself from it or was do you think i mean i don't know you just said you you're in the middle of a book do they kind of he didn't he didn't get to station by station (laughs) to station yet i just wonder if they're like hand in hand if they're like total concept Mm -hmm. uh music and personality and then boom there you go or i wonder if they're just if he's writing music like you said like he's singing soul music and then creates put something on top of it to protect himself and then can get rid of that when you know whenever he feels like it's necessary yeah in the book they do identify him as a a well chameleon and him identifying an individual who he wanted to rip off their entire identity <laughs> and seeing somebody in his desire to reinvent himself and his desire for ultimate celebrity he would target people like uh, Mick Jagger we know he duetted with Mick Jagger but he would see somebody and see the effect that they had on the audience or see the record sales that they had and decide I'm going to absorb and subsume their persona and their sway over their audience. So I imagine he saw some entertainer or somebody and said, I want to be just as Cab Calloway as Cab Calloway in his white suit or or some soul singer. This is also the era where this character sort of has a very, he's called it pro-Aryan, sort of very Aryan sort of character. Yeah. And it's kind of when he gets into the uh, flirting with fascism, at least yeah. in terms of being a character, mm-hmm. and has in character makes some very pro-fascist statements, and yeah. he gets into trouble with this incident where he's in London, and he's riding around in a open car and starts making uh, Nazi salutes to the, uh, to the crowd. That happened a which lot. Which is not good, no. by the way. You shouldn't... You should, that's not... Rock and rollers out there, if you're... If you're planning on becoming an international star, don't don't do it. Don't do a uh, Hitler salute. They, Bad for business. There was a a lot of elements of like punk rock that 
that happened with in the late seventies and early eighties too. I, I seem to recall like like Susie Sue. Well, she used to have a, 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 a swastika armband. Well, there you go. Like there was. Uh, the idea of sure, like the Ramones had like fascism yeah. that came that you're, you know, a generation that's that grew up just, you know, real recent. Like you know, the World War II was so recent, and maybe mm-hmm. you were either either born right then or just after then, and seeing all the effects of it, that there's like a, a peaked interest in like, oh, I can press someone's buttons, and I'm 22 years old, right? And yeah, it's it's less about the actual kind of philosophy, yeah. Michael it's Jackson, more about just just pissing people off. Michael sure. Jackson did that stuff too. They're playing with the phenomenology and the 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 megalomania. Sure. <laughs> that pop stars and fascist leaders seem to share. But so. do you think he was aware of it? Because I'm sure Bowie, at least on some level, was aware of it. Even if his again astonishing drug use may have yeah. blinded him to what really was going on. But I think mm-hmm. at least the character was developed with a very purposeful idea. Yeah. But, but like with someone with Michael Jackson, do you think he really understood the kind of the hagiography was like a, a an in-joke or do you think that was really just him? In that Michael Jackson also appropriated other things that were by, by terms of politically correctness uh, not appropriate like the minstrelsy of Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson wore glo- white gloves and, right. and white socks and things to, that are were throwbacks to minstrel shows and things sure. like that. So were you to examine... But ultimately, those things are stagecraft as right. well. So I, I imagine Bowie kind of did it from a point of view of stagecraft, not offstage driving down the streets of <laughs> London, London, Waterloo Station, yeah. doing um, you know, Nazi salutes. Mm-hmm. But it, and the last thing about this, I find it interesting that when he decides to ditch this persona and kind of get clean and wants to get away from the fascist persona, what does he do? Hightails it to Berlin, to Berlin. for the yeah. next three yeah. albums. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. a... I, I think you... You're missing the point yeah. here somewhere, Davey. <laughs> uh, Richard's done his second. Michael, what's your second? Uh, my second is uh, Jareth the Goblin King Ooh. from uh, Labyrinth. Oh, oh cool. thank Jareth. God you chose this, by the way. Is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, because Sarah was, was was on my ass about this one pretty good. <laughs> well, if you don't choose it, at least mention that it's a, it's a, at least mention that it as a, as a runner up because, I, yeah. I was kind of on the fence when we were talking about like personalities. It's It was weird for me to think like, I was very focused on, David Bowie as a musician and then I started thinking well he does he's done a lot more than just music he's been involved he's been a painter and he's yeah. been uh, an actor in a lot of different roles whether he was uh, you know Andy Warhol mm-hmm. or the man who fell to earth as we've talked about or the elephant man or the elephant man or like and then this or one... stormtrooper number seven and <laughs> Star Wars and hope you guys didn't know that was he no okay, oh, okay. I'm an a-hole. Jeff Hopkins. Man, you fell for that one, Michael. Well, listen, he, re- he read a book. He can say anything right now, and I'm going to believe true. him. <laughs> uh, but as a movie role, I think the Jareth one is the most iconic. And the most, it's just like, it's very well loved for being like this villainous outsider, you know, kind of other side of the mirror character. And I think that also plays into all of his types of personas is they're all otherworldly. They're all... Uh, kind of you know they're all strange yeah and like this guy in tight pants and big hair and it was very 80s but then very silly 80s mm-hmm. you know it was this Jim Henson version of you know mythology and yeah. uh, you know were, were Johnny mm-hmm. Depp alive he would have played that role and I feel like Johnny Depp's entire career has been to play that role 
a the, remake yeah. a remake of Labyrinth with Johnny Depp. He, as yeah, I, well, it's I think not, he, that is like a really good casting. That he, is pretty good. He mm. he is the outsider who is the insider in this other wor- other otherly world, um, he, who's escorting the the Alice in Wonderland type character uh, to to what may be her uh, good or bad fate. So I, I and I think it's fascinating that when when think of Bowie playing a role in cinema and do those roles in cinema count as part of the, as we discuss this category, all of his roles were roles in cinema. All of his singing personas were cinematic roles. Sure. They were all stagecraft stage I, yeah, personas. I get, so, yeah, that's yeah. totally right. That they're, they're, it's, we're not just talking about a, a musicianship. We're talking about the visuals that accompany yeah. the musicianship that extent that add to this you know, yeah. identity. And, and I, what, I, what wonderful casting that was for a million reasons. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the uh, the music for the, the movie was kind of fun and silly. I, I really only remember the dance magic or magic dance song. Mm-hmm. There's a few others that I think are fine. I mean, musically, I think it's okay, but it's not like I, there's anything really to write home about. But yeah. maybe I'm selling myself short and maybe well, I'm <laughs> crapping all over my own point in, in well, terms of importance. But like the Jim Henson Studios put out two movies basically in the early 80s that were kind of targeted towards the same sort of audience. You know, mm-hmm. it was Labyrinth and it was the Dark Crystal. And they never really did anything that was on the same level of those. And I wonder if they stand out more because they only did two of them. And I, I think that yeah. that Bowie's performance was, you know, iconic in that way that it's like, okay, that helped. It helped as a singular thing that there weren't multiple. Like yeah. it wasn't a Labyrinth 2. Where yeah. someone else came back as the Goblin King, you know Don, Johnny mm-hmm. Depp, as you said, or whoever. Yeah, were were Henson to be like Burton in that he created multiple fantastical worlds, and we saw these same characters coming back that might not have felt so special. Mm. It seemed like there was just a couple times, couple outings. So I love that casting, and I love the fact that uh, were we to have a curmudgeonly character um, today, and we cast Bill Murray in that character. It would be so gratifying because he spent his lifetime living up to that character. Right. And Bowie had spent his entire career convincing us that he was otherworldly and that he has physically the the countenance. He's got an, a grin that's both happy and evil at the same right. time. I mean, he's Halloween Jack. He's got a jack-o'-lantern grin and the heterochromia in his eyes make him naturally kind of otherworldly he's got two different eyes and a dilated pupil so the casting couldn't have been more perfect there whether he did get to really show his chops as a singer or not it was still really cool well let me say why sarah wanted oh, you to choose wanted somebody to choose this one yeah is uh his codpiece <laughs> and how and this is this is this is her quote so this came out what 85 86? sounds about right 86 87 something like that yeah so sarah would have been like 12 according to her this Bowie in that cod piece was a sexual awakening for her and many women, many young girl, many girls, her and many girls her age. Oh dear! So oh my, as George Takei oh would say. My. So I can't really, I can't comment to that personally. Yeah, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave that out. Leave there. that out there. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing was him uh, throwing babies. That's good stuff. Uh, that brings us to our halftime. And I'm going to implore you to let us know what your favorite Bowie phase was on Facebook. This Go to the Mount Rushmore podcast page on Facebook. Let us know what your favorite Bowie phase was. Uh, and let us know what you'd like to see in the future with the Mount Rushmore podcast. We'd love to entertain some category suggestions. We've been doing it for 50 plus 
uh, episodes, and we're not running out of steam. We're just getting started, but we'd love to get you into the dialogues. Yeah, for example, if you'd like us to hear us do the John Cougar Mellencamp phases. The different phases. When he was John Cougar. Mm-hmm. John Cougar Amer- Mellencamp. American Fool. John Mellencamp. Pink Johnny Houses. Coog. Johnny Coogie. The Coog star. The Coog. I introduced him at a concert once and accidentally said Cougar Melon. Oh no! <laughs> fucking pissed off. Oh no! Wait, wait, hold on. When this was, we're not, we're not, we're, we're not just going past this here. Hold on. This, this <laughs> was wasn't it, in Burbank, was it, was it? Was it his denim jacket phase or a slightly worn <laughs> denim jacket phase? I think he had been divorced from a supermodel. So this is this is post um, American. Tr- it's after Bruce Springsteen had reclaimed the throne of the America's favorite troubadour. Sure, and he. And I think it's after violins had started to come into the music. So, mm. so it's after Rain on the Scarecrow, Blood sure. on the Plow, or whatever. All right, Cherry Bomb. Right. So what? 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 Where was this concert? It was in Minnesota, oh, okay. in Minneapolis. It was a it was a buyout for uh, a company that I was working for. Oh, they had okay. enough money that they could buy out big stars and things like that. We weren't supposed to look at him either, so he was an asshole. So, oh, okay. Yeah. It's good to know. Yeah. So we won't be doing that one. We won't be doing that one. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Uh, join us in uh, on our Twitter. Join us on our Instagram. We'd love to uh, have you download, rate, and review all the episodes, the current ones, the past ones on iTunes. The future ones. That'd be interesting. The future ones. Yeah. <laughs> try that. Try that. So uh, we'd appreciate that if you would do that. We are back. Each of these um, dudes has exclaimed... We are back. Each of these guys has let us know what their... I don't have a Mount Rushmore. Why are you such a fucking idiot? No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> work on that one. Can't, I can't pick we, just four. We can't just do that. You can't just drop it on us right here. <laughs> we, got a, we got a couple of weeks to think it over. And uh, We're in the back nine. These guys have told us the first two choices, and now we're going to like, probably into deep cuts in, as far as... Uh, Bowie personas are concerned. So, uh, Richard, give us your third. I think you're correct. I think we started knocking out. We knocked out kind of the big ones already. Yeah. yeah. Come uh, on, come on, Richard. Come on, choice. mime look. That is exactly oh what my I'm God. doing. Is it? Yes. No. Yes, of course. Mime is a winner. The uh, P- <laughs> Perot um, mime specifically from but not the, Ross Perot. The, the Perot. <laughs> that would be incredible <laughs> if it was though, right? Um, from the. Uh, Ashes to Ashes video, which if it was Ross Pro again, Ashes to Ashes, that's to dust. Um, oh man, I was waiting for your Ross Pro impression, and here we go. Well, you know, <laughs> got I got it. a million of them, all terrible. <laughs> so it, this was 1980, I think it was, and kind of the Bowie, it was like sort of a down period for Bowie. The Berlin albums were very well critically received, but they weren't necessarily. Yeah, you know, commercially successful. Like everyone loves the song "Heroes," but it was actually kind of a kind of was bombed when it came out. For example, hmm. so he starts to take this interest in sort of the new romantic uh, movement that's coming out of England, and at the same time, also is sort of looking back to some parts of his past again. Uh, a couple of things: one specifically, the Major Tom character, who. In Ashes to Ashes, he sort of references... He takes another look at, but instead of being this sort of romantic sort of character of cutting his tether to go to Earth, it's really more about, like, the dark side of it. You know, what actually happened to him. You know, he became, becomes junkie and, you know, can't figure out how to live in this world. Mm-hmm. And also, in terms of a look, 
he um, studied mime uh, back in the 60s as he was trying to also kick off his music career unsuccessfully. Yeah. He also became an unsuccessful mime. There's like a successful mime. So that's about, I mean. Marcel Marceau. No, that's not true. Marcel Marceau, Shields and Yarnell, Mum and Shantz. All of them. Is Blue that and Shantz's. Are we talking about like pantomime, the white face mime? That's what Bowie was. The yeah, pantomime, the white face. Yeah, and he, when you he, picture the character, it's the the the, the white face clown with like the hat and yeah. everything wearing white. Well, then the comedian del arte sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I guess that the field was open and primed and just waiting for a new mime to come in and scoop up all that good I, mime money. I my first training in I totally any kind forgot of art. About, I totally forgot about this look though, or this, was this identity. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I mean, until we, you know, I was joking around. Sure. I was like, oh, this is a art form that's thousands of years old, and since uh, I think it was the movie Ten or something where Dudley Moore punches a mime, suddenly mimes have been on the shit list of every early morning DJ or hacky comedian. When this art form is is thousands of years old, sure, it's pop- perhaps one of the earliest. Forms of, of hacky. mass entertainment, hacky <laughs> mass entertainment. Um, but Bowie kind of, you know, Bowie being Bowie kind of turned that sort of, like I said, Commedia dell'arte kind of, yeah, you know, and that character is supposed to be kind of a fool mm-hmm. who winds up getting betrayed in love, but still doesn't, too naive to realize what has happened. Was all the white, you know, grease paint, was that cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had a bunch left over. He was uh, sober by that point, yeah. so he needed something to do yeah. with it. But no, it was so. But he, it was kind of like the dark version of that. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the uh, Pennywise, the clown, mm-hmm. dark mm-hmm. version of a clown. So it's sort of like that character, but except instead of being naive, being I think he's kind of Pagliacci. kind of worn down. You almost Pagliacci, like a Pagliacci. Yeah. It's kind of bringing that into the mix, but sort of instead of being incredibly naive, it's the character that's been incredibly worn down by life, and you know, sort of what happens when the fool realizes that he is the fool. Mm-hmm. And also, he's a fucking mime. <laughs> I wonder if this is a flip side to the ego-based personas that Bowie had, in which maybe he thinks this is, guy is the clown. He's a little bit, he's kind of, he doesn't have as much power. He doesn't have as much prestige as the other characters. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, this, as I said, that he, he was kind of, his star was waning a bit in the late 70s, at least in terms of popularity. And this is the thing that kind of got him back as a successful entertainer, let's say. I mean, Ashes to Ashes was a really big hit, that album was. And by the way, also tangentially, perhaps my favorite Bowie song, Funky as Hell. One of, mm-hmm. one of the, maybe on the Rushmore of Funky as Hell songs. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's a testament to Bowie that he was able to take a fucking Comedia dell'arte mime and make him cool. Hmm. Yeah. Del Arte, like... Means of the arts, John. Of the arts. <laughs> no, I'm saying Del Arte does my yard. He's the guy... Oh, yeah. yeah he's, the, he's my groundskeeper. Del Arte was uh, a, a really fast surf rock guitarist, right? Yeah. From the 50s? Right, I believe he was. Uh, the only, th- the only thing I, other thing I really know about Comedia Del Arte, by the way, is... Remember that uh, awful Aaron Sorkin uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? Mm. Oh, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the 30 of, Rock competitor, yeah. Yeah, one of the characters... Who's like the hot female, uh, young female, like performer in the show? Rosita became, became a hit because she created a Commedia dell'arte clown character that took off with the with the fans, and that was the point when that happened. That was the point where I remember specifically saying, 
oh, fuck this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bridge too far, yeah. Aaron Sorkin. Okay. Speaking uh, of cocaine. Michael, what's your third? Uh, my third, uh, I don't think is a very popular choice or vision or version of him, but it was like his Earthling album, 1996, 1997. It's funny how a goatee and orange spiky hair <laughs> and uh, a right. really thin demeanor and drum and bass and European electronics really just kind of summed up the later half of the 1990s. And I think that this album and this style of music, I think it was two things. One, I think it was incredibly of the time more than we realize. Like, I think that he was probably making music and inspired by people like Chemical Brothers or Prodigy Mm -hmm. or things probably a lot earlier than most people were. Yeah. And uh, I think that this album was was songs like... uh, I'm afraid of Americans, and uh, was that when uh, Trent Reznor was involved with that? Right. Yeah. That that I think that it came out at a time when he hadn't really had a ton of new good music for a while. Like he, by the end of the mid '80s, he did like his Tin Machine stuff, which yeah. we'll get into. Okay. Like I can't think of music from, you know, the end of. China Girl to... There's that Never Let Me Down album. See, I don't... Which is kind of a garbage... Which may you, be his you worst... You Maybe his worst album. You mentioned it earlier. He kind of has like these kind of peaks and valleys mm-hmm. with his music where like things may, maybe are commercially low, but, you know, yeah. critically hot. Like yeah. you said, his Berlin trilogy. And I think that this was an album that came out and a look behind it where he felt very in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of rare for him because I think that he was always ahead of it. But you look back and you see like the, you know, you see the Union Jack jacket, the Alexander McQueen Union Mm -hmm. Jack get up and you see like, he looks very much like, oh yeah, you're in 1996. You're in 1997. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very strange for him even though a lot of artists were doing the same thing. You mentioned Madonna earlier. She had an album in like 94 called Bedtime Stories and another one in 98, Ray of Light, where they were very like... Of the moment. Of the moment. And you look back and you're like, oh my, you know, she's, you know, I joked about her being a chameleon chameleon as well, or or, or, joked about him being a chameleon, but Madonna has been very trend worthy and very in it as much as anyone else has. And I think for David Bowie to do that, to suddenly... Be like, oh, he's putting music out that sounds like it came out now. I think mm-hmm. is very strange for him, but I think very important for to get him back into yeah. the mix of things. Yeah. I think the two influences that Madonna and Bowie might have flirted with on and off is being relevant in in dance music and in the in radio. So dan- mm. I think dance music as a very like a meritocracy. So clubs. Uh, respond to what people are actually respond to on a dance floor. And so for Bowie to, uh, for Madonna to decide, Madonna as a, as a kind of culture pirate goes and finds what, discovers what voguing is and immediately darts into a recording studio and <laughs> writes mm-hmm. a song called Vogue. Right. And then how music changed. She would find the hippest producers and get into a studio as soon as she, yeah, she could. Yeah, like work with Tricky or yeah. Bjork, like yeah. for Bedtime Stories yeah. you mentioned, or mm-hmm. Letty Kravitz, I think for Ray of Light, she did some that sounds writing. Right. If it's, it's, is there anyone more in 1998 than Lenny Kravitz? Yeah. I, think, I think that there are, are bands like that. Like if you look at like U2, 
like there are people that have like slightly adjusted their music like and then some of them are kind of straight like the, the youtube what was that pop album mm-hmm. and like the song discotheque like it's a very it was a very conscious yeah album and a very conscious decision to kind of bring in a more synthesizer mm-hmm. or, or whatever but like it's like whenever you hear a band make their blank album you know? sure like, yeah, yeah. That's, a good that's whenever yeah. you kind of get, more often than not it's Listening not to successful. It, listening to there is a connection between I think Bowie and and Duran um, Duran via Nile Rodgers, but hearing Simon Lebon interviewed about Duran Duran's record output and saying they have suffered from their desire to stay relevant by doing their their synth album, their punk album, their grunge album, mm-hmm. <laughs> by trying to keep in fashion with whatever's selling on the radio, by being a radio band, they've always struggled to try to be relevant to what is playing on the radio at that time. And I think Duran Duran, like Bowie and maybe like Madonna, have suffered from their longevity in that by by the time I understood who Bowie was, I knew him both as an oldies act and an old guy trying to stay current on MTV. And he's, he was still around up until last year and still most they're coming in and out of relevancy. But I think that's a challenge in that whenever an artist who is, who is, his identity has always already been placed in the Hall of Fame, which he was in 96 or something. When, <laughs> yeah. Once you're already in that's the Hall right of Fame. That's right around this time, yeah. You, that's funny. They don't, nobody wants you to do a trendy album anymore because then... It, go do you, a Greatest Hits album. Yeah, go or do... tour or something. Yeah, because yeah. you don't want to see Dad putting on the outfits that all the kids are wearing, you know? So I think it's something that is their... Their blessing is their ability to to always be attuned in with what popular culture is, and it's their curse when they wear whatever the current fashion is. Well, musically. It's, it's, it's like the Spinal Tap, always being sort of like a half a step behind hmm. whatever the culture is of the moment, whether mm-hmm. it's the uh, <laughs> yeah, you know the the Beatles or you know the you know the psychedelia or yeah. heavy metal. It's always like not quite right. <laughs> Richard, what's your fourth? So my last one, and we are talking about deep dives and a little bit of trying to sort of shake things out in your middle age, is the Tin Machine. Okay. Uh, tin yeah, Machine I, Bowie. I glossed right past that, assuming that it's like... It's easy to do. Um, so I think he tried to gloss right past that by the second album, too. Well, we'll get into that for sure. But um, right around 89 or 90, I mentioned uh, Never Let Me Down and then the Last Spider Tour, which was this massive like 50 million dollar to stage like monstrosity of a tour and after he got done with that he kind of just got sick of being a pop interest like he didn't want to really wasn't interested in being a top 40 act anymore and he was looking at some of the uh some of the indie bands that were coming out specifically the uh, pixies he was a Huge Pixies fan from from the early stages. There's actually a uh, Pixies documentary where he talks a lot about the band and in hearing them for the first time. I really like these artists called the Pixies. This Frank Black is a you know, very interesting. This Black Francis fellow. But so he decides to go ahead and create a band, but not in the kind of standpoint of the Spiders from Mars or something where it was a backing band for him. He actually wants to get into an actual democratic band situation where he's just more the singer and guitar player one of the four guys in the band so he creates tin machine um with reeves gabriel who had been i think played guitar with him on a couple albums and then also soupy sales kids 
Oh, the Haley's or uh, they will boop, boop, sale. Yeah, it's Soupy Sales Kids. Yeah, I think that's uh, Hunt, sales Hunt Sales and Tony. I think. Yeah, I think that's uh, both noble and idiotic. Right. I think, <laughs> but once you've gotten to the point where you are one of the most recognizable figures in the world, I think it's, I think it's impossible to be like, I just want to fade away to the back and be. Just a man. Just one a, of the guys. You're no longer a man in the band. You're you're David Bowie. And either you have to like accept that weight or you have to, I guess that's what happened to him. You, right. You, you can't get, like it's hard, you can't get past, like, you know, you talk about being a president of the United States too. It's like, you're always the president. People don't right. say like, they might call you former president, but you're always known as the president. No one's like, hey, remember that, um, that Ronald Reagan guy? Yeah, or oh, that Obama fellow. It, it's all like it's always on you, and when you're right. a pop star of his size, like, I, it's noble. I would th- think that to be like, I just want to put this aside for the, for you know, to be a part of a collective. But like, mm. it, it and it really did kind of feel like a purging. Mm. That would be amazing to be a pop star for thirty years and never been in a band. I've always been right. I've always been this guy. So, so what? Are, yeah, just having no like concept of how a band concept works, right? Is it my? Am I the top bunk? Am I the? Yeah. Wait. Okay. Who left the toilet seat up, guys? Was it me this time? Is it my turn? Is it? Oh. Am I driving? Is it my turn to drive? Yeah. I was just gonna say I, I don't know how to drive. Um, uh, let's just crack, get, crack a barrel again. I don't think I can stand it. Can't we go to? Can't we go to a Waffle House? Your Bowie is pretty good, Jeff. Um, <laughs> turn back, Sarah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm just shitting on our podcast. It's as usual. Uh, it, and it's an interest. The first album I think is pretty decent for what it was. It was kind of a, uh, like I said, very kind of Pixies styled indie rock, kind of hints of Sonic Youth maybe in there or that. So is that kind of style? So kind of a noise rock thing, but also it's Bowie, so he can't help at that point being somewhat melodic and Bowie like. Um, the second album's absolute crap. <laughs> if you want to hear a crap album, go let's go hear Tin Machine 2. This is a band that is it's like Bowie wanted to do this as like a what it almost feels like, and I don't know if this is the case, that he wanted to do this as like a one album thing and let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And then somehow he got tricked or roped somehow contractually like to doing a, a second yeah. album. Mm-hmm. I don't know that's the case, but certainly what it feels like. I mean mm-hmm. it's just phoning it in. And then they put out a live album called Oive. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it was called <laughs> Oi sorry, take that back. They put out a live album called Oive Baby. Get it? Because Actune Baby? Oh. Oive Baby. Is that right? Yes, that oh, was wow. based off of that. And then That's the band broke up after that. Wow, Bowie and Puns. <laughs> wow. That's a bad and that's a bad pun, by the way. It's a yeah. really bad pun. So but even in interviews after the band broke up, he even he said, Look, I was something I absolutely needed to do. I had no regrets about it. Hmm. And it was some of the most fun I ever had kind of doing music. Because at that point, he he had said, look, I had thought about the fact of maybe I just retire and mm-hmm. go work on my paintings and my art and go basically go fuck off to uh, you know, wow. the Bahamas or something for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And he just decided, no, I can't do that. So how do I kind of work past this sort of top 40 hole that I've dug myself? And that was kind of a way to explode everything so then he can go and do earth stuff like earthling and, and mm-hmm. outside and mm-hmm. kind of rebuild himself as the kind of the, like you said, electronic kind of industrial mm-hmm. rock. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are trends that shape popular music that we would never imagine? Okay. I'm thinking about Didi Ramon's rap 
album. Oh, wait, I was at the uh, so I was at the uh, the Grammy Museum here in Los Angeles, and they have a Ramones exhibit. Oh, they do. Okay, and they have some of D.D. Ramones, uh, D.D. King's, yeah, um, s- stuff. Like I mean, they have the album and maybe like the jacket he wore on the yeah. cover. So if you're if you're like Bowie, you're always searching for the next trend in music. Like if these people these people didn't predict punk and punk happened and then punk changed music forever. And then they probably thought rap was going to do the same. Rap would change rock forever as punk changed rock. And I'm fascinated by how time makes fools of us all, especially musicians who try to capitalize on a new trend. So, Well, the D.D. King thing's interesting to me, by the way, if you guys don't know, D.D. Ramone was the original bass player of the Ramones and in the 80s uh, picked up a legitimate uh, kind of uh, love of New York kind of late 80s rap. And decided to make a solo album as D.D. King. If Blondie can make a rap song. Why can't why, why yeah. can't the bass player from, from the Ramones? Yeah. And it's miserable. It's yeah. a terrible album. But I, I, I would I would beg to differ from this standpoint. I think he did that less as sort of a, this is my ticket to be successful, or I'm trying to hop on this trend. I think that was more of, a, of an actual, like, love for that type of music okay like i it, i mean obviously incredibly misguided and and no talent for it mm-hmm. but i think it was based off of trying to you know almost like the chris gaines thing where you know i think garth brooks tried to do this or trent Reznor's bluegrass album i remember that yeah <laughs> so it was legitimately his it, and also it seemed like dd ramon's point of view was very much in alignment with the lyrics of hip-hop Right. I'm the best fuck everyone else. <laughs> Pretty much. It is interesting that, that Bowie never he sidestepped the whole white guy doing rap thing. Well, God bless that. When, God bless him for that. When we condemn artists for doing albums that are in hindsight seen as a bad fashion choice, I have to forget. We forget that these these trends shift like the wind. And yeah. <laughs> you never predict which way it's going. Uh, Michael, what's, what's your fourth? My last one, and I think this is... Uh, David Bowie predicting exactly where it's going, which is his Black Star, his last album, his death album, his, I I think one of the, you know, it's pretty recent, but I think one of the enduring images of Bowie will be this this image of him as an older man. He died at what, 69, 70? With bandages wrapped around his eyes, with these weird uh, black buttons kind of replacing his eyes as, a very iconic look it, for a man that lived his life constantly changing and changing his appearance and being part of pop culture. It's not surprising that he made his death a part of that too. Yeah, And you know, I don't think he's sold out his death. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it, I think he needed in a sense to make his death part of his life and part of his art as well. And, I don't know if you've listened to it. I mean, it's you know, it came out last year, and I've listened to it a few times. It hasn't really caught on to me. It's a pretty short album. It's eight, nine songs. But it's really haunting and weird. For someone to come to grips with their own art and their own life and be okay with being like, I'm going to put out this last album. I know yeah. I'm dying. I have everything ready to go. It was like a perfect like last performance yeah. piece from the music video, which... He has a music video for a song, Black Star, where it's this weird, like, shaking, people yeah. standing around and shaking and worshiping something, and this uh, spacesuit that's basically been cast down, and you open it up, and it's this bejeweled 
skull and it's like all of it harkens back to his alienness and yeah. his mm-hmm. space oddityness and it's major tom and uh, for he, to be so cognizant of your own death and to still be able to put out this like like i he, i think he's a one of those weird true artists yeah yeah for sure and um so I it does I, seem the ultimate in performance art when you can take the final act of your life and if you're a control freak like bowie and if you're a person who wants all your art to be biographical to take your final act and to choreograph it, to score it, to turn it into a piece of theater. Well, and, you know, for someone whose life was basically, at least kind of professional life was based on transitions. Yeah, good point. There's there's no, it's the final transition is death. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the ultimate one. I think it's, it's almost, it's almost weirdly too soon to talk about it and how important, Mm Mm-hmm like as a, a look or an identity it will be, but I feel confident in like a few years to look back and be like, oh, sure. it's very significantly, oh yeah, very important as a, a last thing. You know, it's funny you mentioned like uh, him as like a control freak. Like, mm-hmm. have you read stories about his, this album? Like no. he has like a, vi- no. he put like, a, they put out like a vinyl copy of the album and there's things that happen to it. Like if you open it up, thanks hipsters. That's right. If, <laughs> if you take if you take out the album from the sleeve and leave like the sleeve in the sun, mm-hmm. it's absorbs. It can absorb oh, sunlight wow. and like can sh- shows like stars and different things. Like, and apparently there's more things that people haven't discovered just about like the album cover. And it's amazing to think that someone has thought out your death to yeah. that point like you're not just writing like you're not just planning a tombstone you're not just saying oh i want to be buried in a, a box or i want to be cremated it's like i want my, my last album and my last the image of me is mm-hmm. going to be immortalized in half a dozen different ways and it's a little creepy and a little like but like i don't it's also embracing it right i think so i mean yeah. i i don't know i you can't you you couldn't make that kind of statement if you weren't on some level ready to embrace death or yeah. at least be comfortable with it. I think, the, I think, you know, he had uh, liver cancer and I think he probably knew about it for so long. And I think that's just one of those primers that's like, okay, well I know this is coming and I've got to finish this last thing. Right. Uh, it's weird and creepy and morbid, but you know, all so much of his <laughs> rest of his life was kind of weird and creepy, creepy and morbid. Yeah. yeah. I do. I do find it, Fascinating. If you think of a guy who made, turned the most, maybe what was the most unusual thing about himself. If you think of how Bowie took his gayness, his his weirdness, and his pan, pan, pan sexual androgyny. There was other people who were doing the androgyny thing, um, but, and turned it into what made him most attractive and beautiful. There's so many people who found him to be the ideal masculine a matinee idol as he was in women's clothing. So mm-hmm. I do find that fascinating to take the ultimate insult to a man who probably had as much vanity as Bowie did. And that is to see your body, uh, um, falling apart to take and take the, the, the age and decrepitude that he was experiencing and turn it into something beautiful and artistic like that. Yeah. That is an amazing statement and something that shows how brave he was. Cause I would be, if there was a recording, if somebody recorded me, instead of singing, I would just be going, fuck, I'm dying. <laughs> my, my, my final thoughts would be like, 
so they're putting out more Star Warses, and I'm not going to get to like I yeah. don't know what's going. Like right. they're doing a number ten yeah. now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, do, they're doing one that's in between. It's like, I'm so uh, I'm so, that? so weirdly vain and yeah. that, like it's just like oh that's this man's making <laughs> yeah. like the pop culture album of his life of his death and it's like but how did Han Solo really get the Millennium Falcon <laughs> and I'll never know I'll never know okay so uh, each of these gentlemen have registered into the uh uh, the lockbox, their favorite uh, uh, boy transformations and changes and ch-ch-ch changes. And um, before I get to decide um, who the the uh, top four that are being etched into the side of this granite edifice. So, um, but I, I got to say my, my favorite Bowie um, iteration was The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I, it really has to do with context because that film isn't amazing. It's Bowie coked up beyond his mind, and it doesn't really fall into the category that I thought I was seeing when I was a kid and saw it in 1983 um, as sci-fi. Uh, even though the film came out before Star Wars, before um, a lot of the sci-fi resurgence, it really is kind of a sci-fi film. But I saw it when I had fallen to earth from one school district, moved from one school district uh, to a very suburban uh, elitist school district, and I was the poor weird kid from uh, the other side of the tracks. And I saw this film, and it really helped me understand how beautiful and fun and crazy and weird outsiders are. And I think that's the message that Bowie gave to the world, along with other people who were making a living about out of being ugly like think of like the b-52s how they took thrift store chic and made it kind of fun and obviously the punk movement you took spitting and and uh safety pins and leather and made it made it powerful so this movie was very helpful to me to see um that i could then go do cocaine and have sex i was gonna say after watching this young jeffy hopkins uh Immediately had a three-way yeah. with his uh, female biology teacher and his male yeah, gym yeah. coach. It was a crazy uh, 15th birthday. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I thought that was pretty impactful as a kid. So, all right. So, uh, these gentlemen have uh, put into the uh, the hopper their choices, and I'm going to m- kind of improv my, cho- my Jeff choices. calls himself choices. the hopper, right? Jeff Hopkins calls himself <laughs> the, the hopper. hopper. <laughs> well, this guy, thumbs pointing right at myself. <laughs> Uh, of course, we're all going to go with Ziggy Stardust. That was a, a an incredible, little indelible character that Bowie created. And like I said, if you can rock a mullet that well, then you deserve recognition for it. And then I think I'm going to go with uh, Michael's Jareth the Goblin King from Labyrinth because that was definitely a persona that was perfectly matched uh, with the role, probably rewritten for um, Bowie by Henson. And then I just love what Richard did uh, in the compelling way he he led us down the path of who the thin white duke was and who David Bowie was as a mime. So uh, I think we're going two and two, or maybe it's three and one. 2.5. I think it's 2.5 or 1.5. But I, I just had a, an amazing time dissecting this guy's career because it, it just operates on so many levels oh, and so and many different could, media. And we could have had another half hour on this. Easy. Yeah. So this has been the Mount Rushmore Podcast. I, as always, am performing in my current identity as Jeff. And I'm Richard. I'm the Goblin King. 